Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. For midday. Welcome to Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold. If you've never memorized Joshua 1.9, I encourage you to do it. It says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. A wonderful promise. All right, we've got a great hour coming up. David Wheaton is going to be joining me all the way from sunny California. He's there at the Shepherd's conference, which I think he goes to every year. So we're going to find out what is going on there and what he's learning. It's always a uh, lot to report when he's at the Shepherds Conference. So we'll take 60 seconds and bring on David. We love hearing from Faith Radio listeners. It's easy to get in touch with us through the Faith Line. When you call 877-933-2484, listen to the greeting, and then press the number 1. Then leave a message for a show host or general manager, Neil Stavum. You can also ask a question about upcoming events, and the event coordinator will contact you. Or if you'd like information on a specific program, you can inquire about that as well, and the producer of that show or another staff person will get back to you. Another way to access program information is through MyFaithRadio.com. Look under the Programs tab for specific show information, including recent guests and topics. Again, the number for the Faith Line is 877-933-2484. That's 877-933-2484 or 877-93-FAITH. Give us a call anytime and leave a message to stay connected to Faith Radio. delighted to talk to David Wheaton. We go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David and his fantastic work. He's in California today at the Shepherds Conference. David, welcome. Hey, good to be with you today, Bill. I don't want to make you feel bad, but I'm sitting outside here at a table at the Shepherds Conference under uh, in sunny Southern California <laughs> under blue skies. Yeah. I hear it's beautiful in the Twin Cities today, so it's maybe not, uh, it's not so bad. It's not too bad, and we've got the high school hockey tournament sure. starting this week. So, you know, we've got a little bit of, uh, we've got some things going on here as well. Very much. Now, I, I would I would live in the Twin Cities any day to Southern California, that's for sure. I know. So, you should have seen the traffic this morning. Oh, I bet. <laughs> now, the Shepherds Conference, that uh, is at John MacArthur's church? Yeah, so Grace Community Church yep. uh, is the Shepherds Conference, and you know, we've, we've made it a point to come out to this conference. This is the 47th year of the oh. conference. Now, I haven't, been, I haven't been going for 47 years, but I've probably gone for about the last 10 or 12 years. It's actually a pastor's conference. I'm not a pastor, but uh, it, it, you can—really anyone can come. It's a men's conference, so it's men only, and you have about 3,500 men from wow. all over the world come. Uh, I mean, literally from all over the world. So it's a, it's quite an amazing experience to be here. You know, not, not only with the preaching, but of course with the uh, with the music and the fellowship and everything else. You see, you know, how God is working in many different parts of the world. And that that's really eye opening. But then, you know, some of the 
really well known. I would say those preachers who are more on the conservative, I don't mean politically conservative, more theologically conservative end of evangelicalism here, like for John MacArthur, Paul Washer, Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Con- Conrad Mbewe comes all the way from Africa. Mm. Um, so just incredible preaching from, you know, some of these kind of leading and noteworthy preachers from all over the world. And the theme this year is is on cl- the clarity of Scripture. And this is MacArthur spoke this morning on this and how this is so attacked today that we can't be clear on what Scripture is saying. It's up to your own interpretation. Um, so there's always an attack on Scripture. We live in a postmodern movement where people can't not stand clarity uh, because they want to get away from the accountability of who God is and what he says in his words. We all want to do what we want to do, ultimately. Well, we don't want to be told by God in his word what to do. So that is the theme of the conference this year, the clarity of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So what else have you learned? What other presentations have you heard? What would you like to share with the listeners today? Yeah, so that was the, the first—the conference started today and ends Friday. And so any given day, they're going to have four or five general sessions, so all the different— preachers will be preaching on something related to that, the clarity of Scripture and why that's critical. So it'll be incredible. But in between those general sessions, they have breakout sessions on topics that uh, the pastors or elders who have come here uh, from their various churches around the world are facing. And the one I just attended over the the lunchtime kind of breakout session was on the, quote, same-sex attracted movement that is gaining greater popularity within the evangelical uh, church today. In other words, the idea that you can be a, quote, gay Christian or a same-sex attracted Christian. And this is, you know, as you know, Bill, there's been a huge affirmation of homosexuality in our society with the legalization of same-sex, quote, marriage uh, several years ago. Well, now it's gone from society culture, and it's being introduced more into the evangelical church, not so much as you know, homosexual marriage at at this point, at least, but as that you can be a Christian, a gay Christian, or be a same-sex attracted Christian. So that's what the theme of this particular session was, and was very interesting as Mike Riccardi, who is a um, pastor of evangelism, went through that question. You know, basically the question is this, are homosexual desires permissible or sinful? And so that's really what he, he talked about in that session. Okay. Um, because you have just thrown that question out. Can you elaborate on that? (laughs) I knew you were going to ask that. Uh, Yeah, you set yourself up, David. Yes, I did. So, you know, he he talked about the definition of what is same-sex attraction. I think it's good to probably have a working definition of that. He defined it as same-sex attraction is enduring experiences of emotional, romantic, and or sexual desires for someone of the same sex. So I I think most people listening probably agree with that. That's what same-sex attraction is. And and by the way, within this movement to introduce same-sex attraction or gay Christianity in the church, that you can be gay or same-sex attracted, you you have to be celibate. They wouldn't say that you you can act on those desires, but your identity can be as, well, I'm I'm attracted to those of the same sex, but I'm maybe living with someone or not, but I have desires for, for homosexuality but I'm not acting on those desires, so therefore, that's who I am. I was born with this attraction. God made me this way. This is who I am. So it's like a homosexual orientation, but not acting on those desires. So I'm not saying they would say that this movement says that you can act on homosexuality. I mean, that's where the the mainline denominations are nowadays, of course, but that's not where it is at this point, at least, 
in the evangelical church. So with, with that as a, a definition, um, this has become, as this guy, this preacher talked about today, a very watershed issue. He said that it may seem like a fringe issue, but it's actually a huge issue because there's so many inroads being made right now into the evangelical church. In other words, if the church, the evangelical church, goes down the wrong road, an unbiblical road on this issue, the evangelical church will just end up a few steps behind behind where the mainline denominations are today in full advocacy for homosexual, you know, both in behavior and in, in attraction as well. So to get to your question, are homosexual desires permissible or, or sinful? I think you have to think about the difference between, you know, um, desire as whether it's a desire or a deed. So I think it's clear from Scripture that homosexuality is always sinful. But is the desire for it? Because ultimately we are all fallen people, and we all have fallen sinful desires. And so he brought the difference between the difference between the idea of noticing something, of noticing something versus desiring something. So I could use the example, Bill, of uh, my sister. You know my sister, Marnie. She's, I, I, she's a beautiful woman. Now, if I just notice that about my sister, of course, that's not sinful. But if I, that noticing goes to desiring, all of a sudden I have an attraction for my sister, or I want my sister in a sexual way, that's, of course, the Bible says, is sinful. So I think there's a, a, an important distinction to be made there that our desires, another word for desires, is our desire, can we define it as something that God wants for us? Is there a biblical expression, a lawful expression where that this desire can be fulfilled? And if so, then it's not sin. But if there's no lawful biblical expression for a desire that we have, just by definition, it's a sinful desire. So that's where I think that the, the fork in the road happens with those who believe you can be a gay Christian and say, well, my desires, these are just who I am with my desires, so they're, they're not sinful. But those, I, I believe I'm more on the side of saying, if you have desire for it is sinful, like Jesus said, if you lust for a woman, if you have sinful desires for a woman, you've not only, you may not have done that desire, but you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So David, what about someone who feels they're genuinely attracted to the same sex, but they're wanting to not make that their identity. It's way down the list of how they identify themselves. They're living for Christ. They're living a celibate life. Um, but, you know, way down the list of how they identify themselves, they're saying, I'm same-sex attracted. How do, yeah, how do they well, fit I, into I the church? Think, well, there's no precedent in Scripture for ever identifying, having, having a modifier before a Christian, especially if it's a Good sinful point. modifier. Good point. Um, you know, I, I would never say I'm an adulterer Christian, right. or I'm a lustful, I'm a lustful, say better example is I'm a lustful Christian. I would never say that. Now, can I uh, lust on occasion? Absolutely. But if that becomes the practice of my life, and we understand that word practice as athletes, uh, Bill, something that characterizes who you are, something you identify with, then there's a real problem there. So I think that that is a, a, a very important distinction to make that we should never identify with sin. And we don't want to give the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel as well. You have to live with your sinful desires. You can't change. You're just, you're just going to be saddled with this. You have to, you know, you have to have these sinful desires in your life and you can't overcome them. That is absolutely not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when we become saved, we're a new creation. And while we'll never become perfect because we have this fallen flesh, this body that we're living in, there's hope and there's help for us to overcome our sinful desires and to become more like Christ, who never desired anything sinful. Not that we can ever get to that point, but as in our sanctification, our growing holiness, 
our 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 direction in life should be one of more holiness and less sinful desire when we put to practice the things and the resources God gives us, which we can talk about in the second half today. Yeah, awesome. David Wheaton is my guest, coming to us live from the Shepherds Conference in Southern California. We'll be back in 90 seconds. back with David Wheaton. David's a regular guest, of course, and he's coming to us live from the Shepherds Conference in Southern California, day one of it. He just got back from a workshop or a breakout session on the uh, gay, Christian, and same-sex attracted movement. And David, I think let's pick up where we left off. Um, um, Just the... I think there was something else you were going to say. Maybe you don't remember. Because yeah, I can I move think on. We're going to talk about. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about. You know, what, what does someone do who who has, um, you know, from the time earliest they can remember, yeah. they don't have desires for someone of the opposite sex. They desire those of the same sex, right. and we we don't want to leave that person saying, "Hey, you have to be left with desires that where there's no lawful expression of them. Right. There's no biblical expression that 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 can be fulfilled. Um, you know, it's like again, you can use me as a a, a man. I'm married to a woman. And, you know, what if I just, you know, all the time had these desires uh, to be with a woman who's not my wife? I mean, do I have to just live with that and just struggle through that without any hope that that can change? And that's what the gospel is about, that there is hope that we can change. And the Bible gives us resources uh, to be able to do that. And the, a key verse on this is from Hebrews 4, where we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. All right, we're all weak. We all have uh, we all have the tendency to sin. We're, we're sinners by nature. We're born that way, uh, but we're also sinners by choice. But that's, that's no excuse, by the way, if we could say, well, I'm born this way. I'm born with these desires. Well, I could say, well, I'm born with adulterous desires. I mean, of course, we're all born sinners. But that's the hope of the gospel, that we're sinners. We need to become right with God. And when we do, through repenting of our sin and putting our faith in what Jesus did for us, who Christ is, and what he did on the cross— that, that's called justification. But then the next stage of salvation comes, which is sanctification. That is the, the ongoing process, the lifelong process of God working in us to make us more holy, more like his son. So that's what this really issue we're talking about today is, sanctification. And how can we be sanctified? How can we, how can we live above or live in victory over these sinful desires that we have, whether they're homosexual desires, whether they're heterosexual desires, whether they're desires for greed or whatever else that is, there's no lawful expression of it. Well, we serve a high priest, as I mentioned, it says in Hebrews 4, who can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. He never sinned. So Christ was like externally tempted by Satan when he was in 40 days right in the desert. But it never went from external temptation, which we all face, to internal temptation, which is the sinful kind of temptation, where we sort of ruminate. We sort of lust after what we've been tempted on. There's the kind of the fine line there. We all face external temptation, like David. Hey, let's go to a strip club tonight, David. That is external temptation. Now, if I just said, no, thank you, that's not what I want to do, uh, I've overcome that temptation. I haven't sinned. But if I go to the next stage and say, inside of my heart, you know, 
yeah, I really would like to do that. I'd really like to go to that strip club tonight. Now I've gone into my desires have become not what God wants me to do. Now I've sinned. So that's the difference It's versus the external temptation versus what, what is going on in our heart. And, of course, Christ always, he deepened, like, even the Ten Commandments. You know, Ten Commandments says don't commit adultery, right? We know that. But Jesus said if you look at a woman to lust for her, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. I mean, boy, this is just really, really strict and strong. And the point is to really to condemn us all under sin, that our only way out is through faith in Christ. But how do you overcome these things, Bill, I think is, is what your question is. And the, the, the answer is it's found really in the, in the example of Christ. What did Christ do when he was faced with these external temptations uh, by the devil? He immediately recognized them and replaced them with a verse of Scripture. And for the person who says, well, I'm not Christ, I didn't, he had no internal propensity to sin, I do. Well, then we go to our identification with Christ. I, I would say it's so important. It's a key passage in Scripture, Romans 6 through 8, that's very, very underemphasized, I think, about sanctification, that our identification with Christ for the believers, we died with him to sin, but we live with him. We rose from the grave victorious with him over death. And we realize we don't have to be slaves to sin, that God gives us his word, his spirit, and he gives us even other believers to help us overcome the sinful temptations that are going on on our inside. David, would you say that the three areas Satan would most like to corrupt us in would be money, sex, and power? Absolutely. Uh, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful yeah. pride of life. I mean, uh, I, I kind of, this is unrelated probably, but this is what I wrote about in University of Destruction, that when, when a young man or one, woman goes off to college as a Christian and they go in that environment, they're going to face, I call it the three pillars of peril. There's a battle for the body, which is sexual immorality. There's a battle for the spirit, drugs and alcohol. It's, you know, if you don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. In other words, you're either filled with alcoholic spirits or drug-induced spirits or the Holy Spirit. And the last one is a battle for the mind. It's a worldview battle uh, about, you know, who, who's going to be your God? Is it going to be the God of the Bible or are you going to be your own God? It's, it's the power. It's the position. Uh, you know, who, who is the authority for truth in life? And so I think you're right, Bill. I mean, over time, Satan uses the same temptations over and over again. Why? Because they work on the vast, vast majority of us. You know, it's just don't like, you know, in sports, don't change a losing game. (laughs) Sorry, don't change a don't change a winning game. I mean, yeah. And Satan is able to defeat us so much through these kinds of temptations. But again, the good news is that we can overcome. We can't be perfect. I'm not saying that. But we can get to a point in life as we, as we strive to have our desires conform with God. And when our desires conform with what God wants, and when we use his resources, when we recognize the temptations in our life and replace them with the truth of Scripture, just as Jesus did, so simply, when we have some Scripture memorized, just as Joseph did when he was facing the temptation of Potiphar's wife, what did he say? He didn't say, oh, I'm afraid to get you pregnant. I can't do this. Your husband will get up. He didn't say any of that. He didn't say any of that. He just said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And he fled. In other words, he knew his greatest desire was to please God over and above his own desires. And when we strive to get there in life so that what we love is what God loves, we will start to practice and overcome the temptations we face in our life. Yeah, and we certainly live in a world, David, where there's a constant barrage of images and messages. And, you know, you... 
the average person, I don't know how many messages that, that are sexually oriented they see in a, any given day, but, you know, it seems to be that that's a Satan strategy that he's not going to take his foot off the gas on. No, it, it's true. I mean, we all have sexual desire. At least most everyone has sexual desire. And, uh, you know, God has created us with sexual desire. And he created us with have the, the design for that sexual desire is to be within a heterosexual marriage. And so what does Satan do? He takes that beautiful uh, gift from God, that sexual desire within marriage. And what's he try to do? He tries to pervert it and twist it. So it will be used in a way that, that dishonors God and harms us. And so that's why the messaging in society, every television show you see, every commercial on TV, the movies, um, that's why Internet pornography is just a gigantic multi-billion dollar business because it's really, a break it down, simplified, it's Satan taking a God-given desire and perverting it uh, to our own detriment. Mm-hmm. David, in the time we have left, what would you say to someone who is trying to overcome any sinful temptation? Well, the answer is uh, you can do it with God's help. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it by pulling up your bootstraps. God isn't just interested in our external behavior. Uh, he is just as he's actually more interested uh, in our heart. And so when you draw near to the Lord, when your goal in life is to do what uh, it says in Romans chapter 8, to become more like Christ, and you do that through spending more time with God, obe- being obedient to him, reading his word, there's a transformation like it talks about in Romans chapter 12 that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And when our mind is, is, is transformed, our desires and our affections become transformed. And this is a process called sanctification. And so when this takes place in our life, all of a sudden our desires begin to be what God's desires are. And when we face temptation, we recognize right away, no, this is not what God desires for me. I want, to, I want to love and honor and obey God more than I want to do what my flesh wants me to do. So the message here is there is great hope for those, me included, for those who face temptation to sin. Uh, there's also great help, not just hope, but there's help. There's specific resources of God's Word, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is why God gives, us, gives believers the Holy Spirit to help us overcome what we can't overcome on our own. And when we rely on that— then we can have true victory, and we can live a life that overcomes the sinful temptations that we, uh, we can face in our own lives. Yeah, God didn't intend for us just to white-knuckle it, did he? No, not at all. Well, um, David, we just have a minute left. What's coming up next at the Shepherds uh, Conference? What do you have uh, as far as the next general session? Well, let me see. <laughs> There's a lot. I mean, it's a lot in three days when, yeah. when you come here. I mean, you feel like you're drinking out of a, a fire hydrant. But, yeah, I bet. Uh, there, are me- there, are, there are messages. And, and, and the thing is, like, you can't possibly take it all in. I try to take notes. But, you know, it's like the Christian life. It, it's, it's not a lightning bolt. It's, it's a marathon. Right. And it, it's about moving along, taking one step after the other every single day. And that's what that's what something like this is. It, it's it's when you when you hear sound and good preaching. I mean, that's how God designed the word to be to be revealed to us through sound preaching, also reading it ourselves. But through those things, when you hear sound preaching, we're yeah. a product of our influences. And when we're influenced like this day by day, it makes a difference in our Christian we'll, lives. We'll get more update next time. David Wheaton's been my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. WSP.edu/webinar.
having a great day, I must admit. We had a couple people on the show that I've not met before. Greg uh, Morse was my opening guest, and now I've got uh, Grayson Gilbert. He is a writer and a blogger over at Patheos. He's in pursuit of his master's degree at Moody, and he lives in the Midwest. He's got a wife and three kids. Nothing not to like about Grayson. Grayson, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. I know a little bit about what you're doing nowadays, but where did you grow up in the Midwest? So I, I grew up basically in Illinois, uh, maybe uh, a year we spent down south in Arkansas, and then we shot back up to Wisconsin when I was about 11, 10 or 11. So I've been up in Wisconsin area ever since then. Nice. And you uh, uh, married with three kids, and you are a writer at uh, Make a Lot of Contributions over at Patheos. Yeah, we, we contribute on a blog called The Chorus and the Chaos. So the, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Patheos overall, but it's a, a blog hosting site. So there's all sorts of different people and blogs that are on there. Um, and we're just one of the blogs that they host. Yeah, well, I must not be that familiar with it because I didn't even pronounce it correctly. <laughs> well, that's okay. I think, honestly, anybody you talk to is going to come up with something a little bit different, right? Okay, but it's Patheos. <laughs> Patheos or Patheos? I'm Patheos. not positive. Patheos, okay, cool. I say it like the like you would with the Greek, so I don't know. I might be dead wrong. Yeah, and the Greek would say what? Uh, patheos. Patheos, which cool. Is probably totally wrong with how they do it. That, that's okay, but I would like to sound smart too, so I'm going to start start saying patheos. Yeah. So I appreciate the coaching on that, and great article you wrote. Um, and let me just give my listeners the title of it: "You cannot deny someone forgiveness and be a Christian." Wow. I'd love for you to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. One of the one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith is simply forgiveness. I mean, I think of um, the book of Philemon is such a great example of that. But we have the parable of the unmerciful servants. We've got uh, part and parcel to simply having faith in Christ is this idea that, um, for one, that no matter who you are, you can find forgiveness in Christ. Uh, in spite of all that we've done, all the black marks, all the skeletons in our closets, we can uh, find true and lasting uh, reconciliation with the Father. But the idea is that when we have that, it's going to bear fruit, and that fruit is going to look like actually being able to forgive those who wrong us. Now, that obviously, there's going to be some difficult times where we might have some that uh, sin against us in a really nasty way, and that becomes very hard to do. Um, but the reality is we've all sinned against God, and we've all uh, stood guilty before him, uh, but because of what he's done to cleanse us through the cross, if we if we understand that work and the true beauty of it and and really cherish the forgiveness we have, um, I don't see how we can withhold that from anybody else, if that makes sense. It does. And um, every time, Grayson, I get someone that talks about forgiveness and they usually bring up that, you know, if you're, the gospel says that we need to forgive our enemies— I always want to have the discussion to say, how do you understand the word enemy? I believe an enemy is simply anybody who is opposed to God himself. And so uh, when when we define it quite broadly, um, an enemy is an enemy of the gospel. It's an enemy of God the Father. And so uh, simply by that vicarious um, divide that they've made with God himself, we find ourselves at odds with them. Does that make sense? It does. But, you know, when I always hear you have to forgive your enemies, I think, well, who, who are, what constitutes an enemy? How do I define going, oh, that person, that's an enemy. 
seems like the forgiveness that I really need to work on are the people who are in my loving circle of influence. Yeah, that can often be the case. Um, obviously, we're going to be we're relational people. We're all uh, dealing with relationships, whether it's in the workforce or within the family or the church itself. Um, so no matter what, we're going to rub each other wrong in some aspects or we're going to sin against one another. Um, so that's going to be a natural part of it. But I think in, in the other sense, too, we live in a culture that's extremely divided on pretty much anything you can think of. Uh, so when we think of, in the natural sense, what might constitute an enemy there, um, you're going to have people that are of all sorts of walks of life, people that might be related to you, family members who are unbelievers, um, people within the workforce that just make life difficult. Um, you can really kind of fit a ton of different people within that, that broad umbrella. Uh, however, within those relationships, I think there's, um, I wouldn't necessarily qualify somebody as an enemy who's in the church that sins against us or in our families that sin against us because those relationships are just a bit different. Mm-hmm. And when we think of the lost world, the, the gospel and the Bible teaches us that it is absolutely foolishness to them, uh, to a world that's perishing. So the idea yes. that we're uh, looking upon them as enemies of the gospel and you know we want to live in a place where we're forgiving them and God forgives them, wants to forgive them if they repent. Um, yeah, it can be confusing uh, for when we interact with people who are lost. Yeah, I mean, on a daily basis, we're interacting with people who are lost, right? Oh, yeah, um, all day long. Yeah, and, and so if, if we kind of look at it in the mindset of, um, you know, these aren't necessarily just people on, on the Internet we're dealing with or just random people in society. They're all souls. Um, and they're on a trajectory, either towards heaven and to be with Christ or towards hell and uh, to be separated from God for eternity. Uh, when we can look at people as as actual souls rather than just uh, people sitting behind a keyboard or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, it makes it much more real. You know, and I don't, Grayson, don't know the sorrow that people have had and the lives they've had. And, you know, when you look at anyone and see that they are that soul that you just described, either going to be the most beautiful creature in heaven or one of the most hideous creatures in hell, we should have a sense of compassion and love and forgiveness and a sense of urgency to share our hope with them. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. I, I think when we get down to it, um, I mean, we've all heard people say it, we wouldn't wish hell upon our worst enemy. Um, but the, the question I always ask is, how much do we actually believe that? Um, you know, it's easy to believe that when everything is going right and you're getting along with everybody. But when you have somebody, again, who can sin against you in a really uh, horrible way, that becomes a lot harder to say and actually carry out. And, and so the question I ask always is, um, you know, does our, our walk back up with our talk there? Mm -hmm. So... What about when our own feelings are so hurt and we, we might think, I just can't forgive this or erase this harm that they've done to me? I think we have to come back to the gospel. Um, each and every time we have to simply come back to what Christ has done for us. And so if we're, if we're thinking rightly on, on what God has done for us in Christ, and, and namely that's, that he died in our place on the cross and took our sins and gave us his own righteousness— um, and cleansed us so that we, we can actually be pure and blameless and undefiled in his sight. 
Um, when we start to look at really the implications of what that means and, and how much the, I mean, the total encompassing nature of forgiveness. I mean, I think of Isaiah where he says, I have, uh, you were once as scarlet, but now I've made you as white as snow. Mm-hmm. Um, talks about casting our sins into the depths of the sea in uh, the book of Micah or uh, Nahum as well. You get all these pictures of, of really this complete and total forgiveness in Christ. And if we see that, and if we see our own sin before a holy God, uh, we see truly who we are as as humanity, um, we can start to actually look beyond the personal offense that some we might have with somebody else and see, again, what is, what is offense before God? Um, because that's going to be the primary thing that defines our relationships and everything else. If we can be in a right standing before God and truly understand what that means, that should flow out into every other relationship, even on those hard ones. Um, That doesn't mean that that person gets carte blanche privileges and and they can do whatever the heck they want or that we, you know, you get somebody who steals from the offertory. You don't give them in charge of money again in the future. Yeah. Uh, But the idea is simply that you don't hold that sin against them. I've got uh, very smart listeners, Grayson, and I just had a listener say, I think forgiving your enemy for me is anybody I find difficult to forgive in that situation. That must be my enemy. I also think I can forgive someone and not agree with them. Interesting point of view. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have any problems with that definition. Um, again, it's looking pretty broadly in terms of who you might just simply, by your own admission, push away. Um, yeah. You also say in your article that um, you will see the practice of forgiveness is a wondrous display of the grace of God in your life. It's a big statement. I love that. Yeah. Again, it, it's always going to go back to the heart of the gospel for me. Um, so when I when I look at the practice of forgiveness and the concept of it, um, you know, I think of my own life in and of itself. I was a guy who uh, raised basically as an agnostic. I didn't take any time in, in church growing up. Um, you know, to give you a, a very brief idea, like we weren't even the Christer family, the Christmas and Easter attendees. We were uh, <laughs> funerals and weddings was about it. Okay. Um, you know, fast forward into my teen years and it was uh, made up of the whole sex, drugs and rock and roll lifestyle. And inevitably uh, turned to atheism and nihilism. So I, I felt it was a logical conclusion. If God wasn't real, then what's uh, basically nothing in life is worth living and morality is relative, um, how, however else you can define it there. But I read the scriptures and I started to see um, in my foolish attempt to try and disprove them that what was being read was true and uh Essentially, I remember being in my room one night and realizing that my current trajectory was hell. Um, There was a choice to be made, and it was either that I could repent and trust in Christ for forgiveness, or I could continue on in my own life and and as I pleased, but go to hell. And I was forced to reconcile with the idea that that's not really a good choice. Um, So basically, in... And not wanting to come to Christ, I came to Christ. And yeah. so there was this weird existential crisis, if you will, or this weird um, unraveling of my entire being.
being and understanding of life itself. Uh, but what came out of that was, again, recognizing total forgiveness for all of the stupid sins that I walked in so willingly for years and all of the rebellion that I committed, uh, not only against my God, but against my parents and uh, destroying families through different means, um, intentionally or not, it, all of the things that kind of came up before my face were vile. And I had to, I had to reconcile with the, uh, the reality of what I did, but at the same time, um, seeing that totality of God's forgiveness in that really opened my eyes to just cherishing that. And, and so it's, again, this intrinsic work with what God is actually doing in us, not only to bring us to faith and to bring us to understand uh, his nature and who he is and his goodness, but to actually transform us into the likeness of his son. Yeah. Grayson, did you have some personal self-loathing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a, I mean, probably a period of about five or six months. Uh, and it was, uh, was as I was reading the scriptures, uh, not a believer at the time, but mm -hmm. as I was reading them, I kept comparing myself to various characters just because that's kind of what I did. I would identify with somebody in, in the Bible. Um, and where it hit me the most is I was reading through Genesis and I got to the part where Jacob is wrestling with God. And I remember being like, oh, I'm Jacob. I wrestle with God. <laughs> and being dumbstruck by that because yeah. it was like, what a terrible thing to think of. Well, let me take a little break. When we come back, I want to uh, talk about another uh, article you wrote in Patheos. Did I say that right this time? Sure. Patheos. Awesome. Uh, Grayson Gilbert is my guest. We're going to talk about Philippians 4.13 when we come back. So in the little 90-second uh, break, you might want to grab your phone or your Bible, open it, look at it up, and get ready for it. Be right back. Grayson Gilbert is my guest, enjoying learning about his life and his writing. And Grayson, I just had a, a listener jump in with a question, how to share the gospel with someone who won't acknowledge God or sin? You want to jump on that and tackle that one? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things that I go to. I think Ray Comfort, um, even though I disagree with him on some things theologically, I think he's phenomenal at what he does. So essentially what we end up coming back to is, um, you know, sin is not simply just this idea that you're going to commit murder or you're going to be a liar or a thief, although that's part of it. Uh, sin is what you are. You are a sinner. Um, so you go back to something like Romans 1, as my pastor would say, and the grand sin of mankind is that they have not glorified God. They have not acknowledged him as their creator and given him thanks. And so the illusion he gives is that you know, picture a guy who's eating an ice cream cone on a nice warm summer day, and he's enjoying the gentle breeze, he's enjoying the flavor of the ice cream cone. Everything about that day is just perfection, as much as it can be on earth. Um, the very act of him eating an ice cream cone without giving God thanks and giving him the glory that he is due is enough to condemn that man to hell for all eternity. So when we start to put it in that radical of a term as that uh, sin is not so much what you do, but exactly what you are. You are a sinner. 
um, we tend to get beyond much of the arguments that can come out of that. Now, he might still reject that, um, but the thing to remember is that we're never going to be responsible for the results. We can just be found faithful to preach the gospel and, and let God do his work through the scriptures. Mm-hmm. All right, Grayson, let's jump over to Philippians 4.13. It's a memory verse for me, and I'm sure a lot of other people. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I know that verse is often uh, misquoted and misapplied and, and misunderstood, like you say in your uh, blog over at patheos.com. I'd love for you to say more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a popular verse, and, and for good reason. I think a lot of people will take it and grab a hold of it. Um, it, it becomes a promise, if you will, because they look at their lives, and sometimes we'll find that uh, not everything kind of shakes up to what they hoped it would be or what they wanted it to be. And so when you go through some of those difficult times, it's an easy one for good reason to grab a hold of and say, I can do all things through him being Christ who strengthens me. Now, the unfortunate thing is when we start to divorce it from the broader context of the book of Philippians, and we start to apply it to like our weight training goals or if we're looking to accomplish our career goals and all that kind of stuff, um, it can get a little bit dicey because um, you know, Paul's idea here is not so much surrounding, you know, kind of our first or 21st century modern categories of success and, and health and wellness. Uh, his idea, he's in chains as he's writing this letter. He's um, preaching the gospel to himself, essentially reminding him, himself that in the midst of incredible hardship or affluence, no matter where we find our at in the, our station of life, that um, we can navigate through it because Christ himself strengthens us. You know, I think of his words elsewhere where he talks about God's strength being made perfect in our weakness. And that's really the idea that's being driven to here. And if we go back a little bit in the, in the chapter, and he talks about just learning the secret of being content in, every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Of course, that is uh, part of verse 12. And uh, we hardly ever quote that leading up to verse 13, do we? Yeah, yeah, I think we we avoid that. We avoid some of the earlier parts of the book that talk about suffering. And so, you know, right in chapter one, Paul tells these people that, hey, just as I'm in chains, you're going to go there too. Um, you know, that doesn't quite stack up next to a, a great promise as far as how we often view things. Um but if we if we look at it, it's incredibly pastoral, and Paul's incredibly warm-hearted. I think we get this misconception of Paul, where we think of him as kind of like this stern rebuker all the time, right? Mm-hmm. But he's uh, he's just a dynamic, loving, pastoral guy. And when we think of I can do everything through Him who gives me strength, even though we sometimes don't put it in context, it's not a horrible reminder that God is going to give us what we need through all circumstances and the strength we have comes from him, we should be uh, able to face whatever difficulty we have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of even Christ's own words where he's talking about how um, basically the the cure for anxiety and depression, if you will, when, when we're searching after the things of this world, like the people of this world do, as far as asking, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? What shall we do tomorrow? Um, you know, but he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, meaning our food and our provisions will be dealt to us. Um, 
you know, God provides for the least of these. He provides for the sparrows and clothes the lilies in, in a greater raiment than even Solomon himself. So when we can start to realize that, you know, God is concerned first and foremost with our obedience to the faith, um, then much of those things that are kind of ancillary will fill, uh, sorry, fall off to the wayside because, um, you know, God is our provider. He delights in providing for us. Grayson, let's back up a little bit in chapter 4 when uh, verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. How do you, how do, you do in that mm-hmm. department, you personally? Uh, my wife would tell you, I'm, I'm, I have the emotional equivalent of a rock sometimes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, there, there's not a ton that really drives me to anxiousness, to be honest with That's you. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, it's it's an incredible blessing from God to be honest with you. I think it's it's a gift. Um, you know, when when I I can sympathize with people's struggles and anxiety, uh, but for myself, it's not something I, I deal with a ton. And so, it's one of those things I'm always having to be careful in because I can obviously project my own uh, lack of anxiety on others, and that's just not always helpful. Mm-hmm. So, what's your firewall that's gone up that that keeps you in that place? It's truthfully the word. Um, I, I'm going to come back to it each time. And so when uh, when trials hit or when, um, uh, for lack of any better way to put it, when there's a testing of, of faith that happens, uh, the thing I'm going to ground myself in is always going to be the scriptures. And it's because I, I firmly believe that in them, not only do we find everything we need pertaining to life and godliness and, and how to honor Christ, but it's going to give us what we need to actually derive hope and to persevere in the faith until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the word, we're, we're just not going to find it. Yeah, I love what you said. Um, the result of being found obedient to these commands is twofold. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ, and the God of peace himself will be with them in the midst of their trials. What more could mm-hmm. we want? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's interesting to me the way that Paul phrases it here, because, again, we could easily drop those parts off, but he he has a successive way that he delivers all this. You know, he gives multiple commands here, and the idea is that they build off of one another, so that when you're actually putting these things into practice, um, you know, think of the one who is anxious. So if you train your mind to think of whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute, um, anything that's excellent and worthy of praise, if you dwell on those things, he says, uh, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and you practice them, then God, the God of peace will be with you. So the, the idea is that they stack on one another. And so if we miss that component, or if we skip parts of it, or if we simply say, well, I'm only going to think of maybe a few things that are are good. Um, The reality is if we actually think of all that God has done uh, from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament for the people of God, um, when we stack our worries and cares before that and we see that God has, you know, he delivered his people from Egypt. Uh, He toppled the walls of Jericho. He brought them into the promised land. He forgave a wayward and sinful people who time and time and time again just disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed. And then we get to the New Testament and we see that Christ even pursues 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are these hypocritical religious leaders, and yet he offers them grace and love and mercy if they would repent. Um, and we get to the church, and we see Christ's work in and through the church as he builds his kingdom and as he and gives them his spirit. I mean, all of these different things. And we, we, then we look at the eschaton when he returns, and he's going to wipe every tear from our eye, and mm -hmm. he's going to... Uh, do away with sin, death, and Satan once and for all. I mean, if we think of the totality of what God does, it's, I mean, how can you get lost in everything else that's miserable and makes you feel dejected, if that makes sense? It does. Grayson, thank you so much for doing the show. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, it was great to meet you as yeah, well. Thank you. Grayson Gilbert's been my guest. You can head to patheos.com, P-A-T-H-E-O-S.com to learn more about him and his writing. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks to all my guests. What a great uh, show today was. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. And I hope you have a great night. And I'm looking forward to our time tomorrow already. So as you lay your head on that pillow tonight, know that God is working out his great plan in your life. See you tomorrow. God bless. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.